financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella, with additional insight from industry veteran Jordan Kimmel. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. And good evening. I am Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. And as always, I'm on with my partner, Dominic Tavella. Good evening, Dom. How are you? Good evening, Mike. How are you? I'm good, thank you. No complaints. So today was uh, the tale of two stories today, right? Inflation and earnings. It was just a really a matter of which one was going to uh, step on the other by the time the day was over. And it looks like inflation won just by a hair. Uh, in terms of what the markets did, right? But this is the number we've been waiting for a long time, Mike. We've been talking about it on the show for a long time. And uh, it did not disappoint in terms of uh, there's some real inflation out there, right? The, I think the markets expected it. Uh, it did surprise a little bit on the upside. Um, the million dollar question is, is it transitory as the Fed says it's going to be? Or is there going to be a more permanent aspect to this? And uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on that subject, Mike. I actually do think there's going to be a little bit more of a permanent aspect to it. But as we talked about this morning with our advisors on our broker call, I think the number for a large part, Dom, is also baked into the cake, which is why the market was down 100 points for the Dow, not really a big deal, because I really think the market was expecting a hot number. I think the headline would have been more dramatic if it was not a hot number. Um, so, so it's this question of how long, how high is the Fed going to let it go? Um, look, one of, one of the aspects of why the number was so high uh, this morning was uh, used cars, right? So, again, we know there's a problem in the country with building new cars. So, used car prices have gone pretty sky high, and it will stay that way until production frees up. We know there's a lot of ships and harbors that can't dock and offload products. So, cost of goods is still high. But, you know, the cost of labor and, and cost of gasoline, uh, there, there's some things that might hang around for a little while longer than the Fed thinks. And so how long will the Fed let it go? How high will they let it go before they decide to put uh, their foot on it and put the brakes on the economy? Right. I, I, and, and I know the media loves to talk about the price of gasoline, but to me, that is just you know, so overstated because it's so obvious that the price of gasoline had a drop last year because no one was in their car going anywhere. So the fact that it kind of went back to its old level, is that, is that really newsworthy? Um, the, the, but, but it is a dollar a gallon plus, right? It, is. it represents about a 40, 50% increase in the price. What concerns me is that under normal circumstances, um, you know, we have large capacity in this country for pumping oil and natural gas. A lot of that has been shuttered. So logically you go, okay, they're just literally going to turn the spigots on. There's a time lag behind when they start and when real production hits the market. But we are in an environment today out of Washington where they don't want those spigots turned on. They don't want that production to increase. So we might have higher prices for the foreseeable future. Future, And some analysts out there are talking much higher prices. No, we definitely will see higher prices. I mean, we joke about it all the time. Who, What industry likes the lower prices if they don't have to? And, and the energy industry is not excluded from that. So, so, you're right. If, if, if they could keep prices a little elevated and make up for some lost time for the last 15 months, I think they would certainly do that. But in addition to, to gasoline, we've talked about it before. It's copper, it's lumber, it's, it's, it's comb construction. It's all the metals and materials that go into electric vehicles. It's cotton. I mean, it's agriculture. Everything is more expensive. Look, uh, so on the positive side, lumber actually had this tremendous increase in prices 
this year and really has rolled over now to where today the cost of lumber is less than it was on January 1st. That's a, that's a positive. This is what the, the Federal Reserve is actually talking about, that as the pipeline opens up, it literally will bring prices back down. Um, but there are other aspects. Copper off its high by 10%, but substantially higher than it was uh, January 1st of this year and not likely to come down anytime soon. So we're, look, we're monitoring this every day. We're talking about it every day. We're talking to the experts every day. Um, and clearly we're baking that into our portfolios. Well, it's clear you're an old TV vet because she gave me the perfect segue to talk about our guest this evening, Joe Levin, who is the Senior Vice President at CBRE, which is one of the largest real estate companies on the planet. And he's going to be discussing, you know, the fate of, of real estate. And, and additionally, a topic I can't wait to get into is infrastructure, um, which he'll be discussing as well. So I'm really anxious to hear what Joe has to say about yeah, those two what topics. A, what a great subject matter and really relevant to where we are and the noise coming out of Washington and what they want to do with the infrastructure uh, plan around the country. And I've known Joe for a very long time, probably one of the smartest people in the industry when it comes to this subject. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we had a brief conversation with him before the show opened and um, he has some pretty interesting views and, and especially when it comes to infrastructure, because it seems like it's been five years that that every month it's infrastructure week. And, and you know, it's just frustrating that something so obvious is taking so long to, to, to get going. And he has some unique views that it appears that the, you know, that's going to get done with or without the government. So I'm really anxious to hear what he has to say about that. Well, and I think uh, the part that I really want to focus on myself is it's been getting done on a state level for a mm -hmm. very long time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we certainly could use Washington's help. We certainly could use monies targeted uh, and add a little fuel to the fire to get these projects uh, off the ground and started. Um, but I love the concept of private-public partnership where maybe we bring a little bit more sophistication to these uh, projects. So this is a terrific subject matter. I can't wait to start. So on that note, we will be right back with Joe Laban from CBRE. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-G-A-X. Le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. Michael Hartsman back with Dominic Tavella and our guest this evening, Joe Laven from CBRE. Good evening, Joe. How are you? Good, Mike. How are you? Nice to see you. Welcome, Joe. Nice to see you. Hi, Dom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, so, Joe, when I heard you were going to be a guest this evening, my brain was filled with 
these rants about the government. We, why can't we get this thing going? And it's about time and, you know, really trying to dig into that. And then we had this conversation before the show started and you basically said in a pretty calm voice, yeah, it'd be nice if we got some government interaction. It'd be nice if we got some money from the government, but it's not really critical. So could you expand on that a little bit? Yes, I'm happy to, Mike. Uh, so I, I assume what you're referring to is the infrastructure uh, spending bill or plan yeah. jobs act, uh, otherwise known coming out of Washington, DC. And uh, you know, there have been a couple administrations that have tried to get some kind of federal spending for infrastructure and it's fallen flat for the last decade. Um, so the question is, uh, will that happen? And two, how meaningful is it probably for infrastructure, listed infrastructure in particular uh, with um, you know, the type of portfolios that we're building? Um, and, and I would answer that question, uh, most likely it is gonna happen. Uh, it might be some form of what it is today uh, as it goes through the house, I'm sure there's going to be some modifications to it. Um, but I, I, so it will happen. But my point uh, earlier was the fact that the tailwinds, the bus has already left the, the station. Um, the, the, the secular changes with the space are already fairly significant. And I think you could look at a couple different areas uh, that one could point to. One is, uh, most of these assets are at the state level. So when you think about bridges, when you think about uh, even aviation airports, uh, when you think about levees and dams and schools and roads, et cetera, these are all state assets. So the states have, and have already uh, through uh, a shortfall, they've already been creative in trying to finance improvements. So by way, an example is the state of Pennsylvania, PennDOT is where I live, and they're operating a $7 billion deficit. Um, and uh, they, they only, about, about I would say 70% of their revenue is through taxing fuel. And so they have, you know, they can raise taxes to increase their revenue, or they can do what they've done in February, which is create a public-private partnership to get private capital involved in rebuilding some of the assets within uh, the transportation within Pennsylvania. And they did that with uh, about 12 bridges in February. They issued a public-private partnership to redevelop 12 bridges. So that's one example of how states are being creative and funding improvements. Uh, the other big area within infrastructure is the transition to renewable power. And yes, while the federal government can help with, with um, tax credits, uh, all states have had some type of ob objectives that they're putting in place with their utility companies uh, to reach certain renewable requirements. And most states wanna be, uh, whether it's a 70% reduction in fossil fuels by 2030, some are 50%. But if you think about that, that mandate that the state commissioners are putting in place with the utility companies, it requires a significant amount of capital for utility companies to invest in their grid and in other power sources like wind power, solar panel, power, et cetera. And this has been going on for the last decade. Uh, and, and that's where you're also seeing some really strong earnings growth coming out of the sector. So, you know, those are just two examples. Uh, why I say the bus has already left the station. Whatever comes out of the federal government is just icing on the cake. So, uh, Joe, one of the things we hear all the time is is how much of a need there is for this bill coming out of Washington. But, you know, we live here in New York and we see what's going on at LaGuardia and the bridges being uh, uh, put up, the new bridges being put up. And uh, Lord knows I spent plenty of time in Florida and equally amount. It seemed like the building never stops there. Yeah. Um, you know, the states have been really aggressively trying to renew their infrastructure uh, for a long time. So how much of a need? Uh, if we don't get a bill at all, is it catastrophic? And if we did get a bill, will it make a dramatic move the needle kind of uh, event? I, I, don't think, I don't think you want to own global listed infrastructure for the sole reason of something coming out of Washington, D.C., 
Uh, I think it's, again, it's a benefit. It's a, it's a nice icing on the cake. Uh, it can only help. It can't hurt. But when we're looking at 8% earnings growth for the asset class going into uh, 2022 and 2023, uh, that whatever comes out of Washington doesn't impact that earnings growth much. Uh, it might add, you know, a few basis points here and there for the next two or three years. Uh, I think the, 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 the more exciting thing can be tax credits, especially with battery storage is what we're looking at. The other component is uh, hopefully they're going to try to be creative. Instead of just raising taxes, uh, they're going to try to be creative in getting public enterprise or private enterprise involved in funding some of these projects. So we'd like to see an adoption of public-private and, and the federal government can help with that adoption. So that's what we'd hope to see out of this more than anything else. And I would just say, Dom, you know, in most countries, if you fly to Europe, believe it or not, as you go through those, those airports, those are airports that are privately, privately owned. Privately owned, right? By, yeah, by publicly traded companies. Same thing with a lot of the toll roads and, opera and uh, you know, bridges. So in the U.S., we've been just a little later to incorporate um, private enterprise into public assets. So, Joe, one more question on the infrastructure, and I guess we could move on to real estate, unless Dom has another one, is, you know, you mentioned Europe, and I remember being in, in France about eight years ago, and there were charging stations for electric vehicles wherever I went eight years ago. Yeah. And, and you don't see any. It's really woeful. Um, in every major city, you probably see any charging stations. So is that going to be a project that the government is going to have to take on the burden of, or is that something you see happening privately? So it's both uh, is, is the answer, uh, Mike. But I would also say the federal government can help, and, that, and that's a, also a part of the uh, infrastructure bill is building out that grid, but it already is happening at the state level. It's already happening at private enterprise. You know, most of the, uh, the, um, the uh, road stops along the turnpike in Pennsylvania are now publicly privately ran through a, through a partnership. They're aggressively, because you have private enterprise involved in those, those stops, uh, they're encouraged to uh, put in those uh, stations. Um, but it's also happening at, at, at company level too. Most companies now, especially larger companies, also want to shrink their carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my point earlier about states coming down on utility companies and trying to meet certain renewable targets, it's also happening now at the corporate level. Some of the Fortune 500 companies like Google and others going out and building their own power source of renewables. And part of that is creating charging stations, but also creating uh, solar panel farms within, you know, their uh, facility or creating some kind of windmill, uh, whatever type of alternative power. So that's the other big growth area within renewables is not just at the utility level, but also at, at the Fortune, some of the Fortune 500 companies. And so just to put a, a, an end to the, this part of the conversation, Joe, the idea of this private-public partnership is that as an investor, you can come up with part of his capital. And when you're driving the toll road, going over the bridge, uh, maybe using the power grid, you, you as an investor can actually profit from, from uh, that uh, consumer spending that money. Yes, uh, that is 100% correct, Dom. And, and it's a way for the state's instead of raising aggressively taxes, or instead of raising to meet that $7 billion deficit that Pennsylvania's Department of Transportation has, they can instead get private enterprise involved to help with that. Yes, there will be a toll associated to that, but it's, it's a, a more feasible, and in many ways, you know, they should be more successful at running uh, and effectively running that asset uh, because you have private enterprise involved. So moving on, moving on to real estate, Joe. Um, obviously, the pandemic has changed everything as it relates to real estate. Um, do you see the hybrid office 
as something that is more permanent? And how does that affect, um, you know, the skyscrapers that are behind you on your screensaver in downtown Philadelphia? Uh, That's a great question. And, and, uh, you know, I, um, we, we don't know quite yet, to be honest with you, uh, what the impact is from uh, remote working and how many people are going to come back to the office on a five-day work week. And if it's going to be two days instead of five days, uh, I think the jury's still out. Uh, as an allocator, I can tell you this. We're, we're underweight office and probably will be underweight office for, for, for some time until it sorts through there are going to be winners and losers. So I think, uh, you know, a, a, a probably a city like San Francisco is going to have a harder time recovering than a city like Philadelphia, which doesn't have a lot of new supply. And what has been built is what's been built. Uh, there isn't a lot in, in that's coming online in terms of new supply. And it's a smaller city with a large uh, suburban population. So that city or, or Raleigh or some of the other cities are probably with greater job growth, they're going to be able to get through um, any kind of uh, hiccups as it relates to office going forward relative to some of the larger cities like a San Francisco. So, Joe, we, we spoke about this earlier, but for the sake of our viewers, you know, real estate's having a really good year. Uh, on the other hand, it had a really horrible, as well as it should, a horrible year last year. Um, but it's got a ways to go to catch up to the uh, long-term performance of some of the other asset classes. And we are dealing with this subject matter of inflation. So can you, can you cover both those, uh, how real estate can help yeah. us in those? Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, real estate has done very well year to date. Um, Performance-wise, uh, the REIT indices are up about 30%, right? So relative to the S&P, I think the S&P is up 14 uh, so significant outperformance, one of the best years so far for real estate. But if you just take a look and see how has the asset class and whether it be real estate or infrastructure, just real assets in general, how it's done over the last five years, uh, S&P is up over 100% cumulative performance over the last five years. And if you look at V&Q as a proxy, which is just an ETF, uh, reading uh, ETF, it's up about 16%. So in 100 performance of, you know, call it 86% <laughs> is quite remarkable. So we, we think uh, real assets today have a pretty good place in a client's allocation over the next, you know, five or so years one, because of that relative valuation. So yes, while it's done, uh, REITs have done exceptionally well over the last six months, uh, we think there's significant value still when you look at it over a five or seven year period. And I think you know what we're getting today is a typical allocation of 60 in equities, 40% in fixed income with increase in, in inflation and, and also a slowdown in equity growth. Uh, you're seeing still acceleration in earnings growth for real estate and for infrastructure in line in 2023 with the S&P 500. And, and this is an asset class should, that should and does do well in an inflationary environment. So I think that's why we see today more than ever allocators looking at real assets uh, to incorporate uh, into their allocation. Joe, I have a two-part question. We have about four minutes to go. Um, one, for the benefit of our listeners and viewers, could you just give us a 30-second or a minute definition of what a REIT is and the unique aspect of it? And then the second part of that is, a, you know, you said the REIT category is doing well. That's a pretty wide net. Could you tell us which categories in the REIT sector are leading right now? Yeah, happy to, Mike. So, What is a REIT? It's a real estate investment trust. Uh, It was developed by Congress in 1960. So it's been around for a while. Think of it as a mutual fund. And really, it is a way for everyday clients to buy commercial real estate, uh, but to do so in a a fractional kind of way. And in order to be uh, a REIT or classified as a REIT, 
there are a few things that need to, to be in place. But one is the two big things are 75% of your assets need to be in real estate. And then the other really important component and why most people invest in REITs is the fact that 90% of their taxable income is distributed in a dividend. So that's what a REIT is, and that's sort of the benefit of, of clients investing in, in real estate for that commercial real estate exposure. And it does have lower correlation, about 0.55 to equities. Um, your second part of the question uh, was the performance and the dispersion of performance this year. Yes, REITs have done well overall, but if you look at what has done exceptionally well, it's been what you might not expect it. So malls are up 56% year to date. Um, now they were down 80% last year. So there's a lot of dispersion within, I would say hotels and malls and retail. So those are three sectors where there's, um, you know, I think everyone thought they were all gonna completely close down and some of them did. Um, but as we come out of COVID and there's a reopening trade, uh, people realize that retail is still a, a place to have some exposure. The Simon properties are still going to survive and we are going to travel again. So you probably don't want to own an ETF, but it makes sense to build a diversified portfolio within real estate because even within retail, you're going to have some winners. So, Joe, just to kind of finish this up on, on the same subject, you know, we talk about the different assets. It could be hotels, it could be malls, it could be office buildings. How about location? Are you guys focusing on certain parts of the country as yeah. being more growthy, uh, more opportunity than other parts of the country? Uh, yeah, also a good question, Dom. So, that's the great thing about REITs or real estate in general. You can diversify a portfolio by sector, but also by region, because most of these companies play in a specific sector. And they also have certain exposure within a certain parts of the country. Uh, so for us, we, are, we like the coastal markets, uh, but we also like, I would say, the, the highest job growth today is really in the Sun Belt and the Southeast. So that's where uh, I would have to say majority of our exposure is uh, today and will continue to be going forward. Joe, we're going to have to have you back. We just, this time flew by. You were a wealth of information, and we cannot thank you enough. I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, you guys are doing a wonderful job. Love, love your podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Joe. Have a great evening. Thank All right, take you, care. We'll Bye -bye. be right back with Jordan Kimmel and his guest, Michael Cardi. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend. It's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash. More Ask your advisor mm -mm. Less about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. You, less taxes. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, LETAX. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax.
After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. And welcome back. I'm Jordan Kimmel, equity strategist and portfolio manager. And it's really a, a, a pleasure and a, and a privilege to bring back on a friend, Michael Carney, Millennial Advisors. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure being here, Jordan. I'm and so, look, just, just to remind everyone to set the stage, you've joined us before, but Michael, you probably know more about facts and magnet than almost anyone out there. In fact, I have a book on display behind me, I think almost 25 years ago. You wrote the back test and, and, and a chapter which led to a, a large Naveen contract. We've been friends ever since, and I really pre- appreciate you taking the time today. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So, so let's just jump into a couple things where, where, Michael, people take things for granted. I want to back up a little bit further. Um, you're probably one of the real pioneers uh, in ETFs. Uh, almost every big panel has you on. Um, and, and there was a thing called factor analysis where you were able to look at companies different ways, uh, quality, size, so on, and actually be able to power rank through fundamental criteria s- security. So people take that for granted right now. Maybe you want to talk about a little bit the history and, and, and a little factor analysis itself. Now, this is something that I, this is something that I've always enjoyed. It basically goes back to the Graham and Dodd days. I wasn't there when he was there, but uh, I studied him in uh, grad school, and I've always been interested in the fundamentals, and uh, I've always been interested in diversification, building portfolios, and I, I came to when we started talking about in, when people started talking about indexing, there were big advantages to indexing particularly if you knew how to construct an index and if you knew if you really did it well then you would you would minimize the cost of running the portfolio and you would probably outperform 80% of active managers because they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> so what i basically did was to separate each of the factors in a portfolio in a particular stock and I'd identify them and basically create a ranking system out of them. And once I had the ranking system, I'd be able to put them in, into, into either deciles or quintiles and rate them from one to five, pick out the ones as being the top performers, put the bottom, keep the bottom two or three uh, quintiles out of the portfolio and just take the one or two. And I had a significant amount of uh, success in doing that, and I continue to do it to this very day. And it's funny because in those days, I was really talking about doing it as an enhanced index fund, not just buying a certain segment of the market, right. like cap stocks or mid-cap stocks, small cap. I was thinking of doing it to using these factors to basically gin up the performance. So I was talking about an enhanced index fund. And this was, what, 25 years, 30 years ago? Just to put that in perspective, for the folks that have been around a while longer, Mike used this number one to five kind of not so randomly. If you remember value line, folks, Michael was there in the beginning and helped create the one to five structure. Uh, and then went on to run one of the highest performing equity strategy funds uh, in the variable annuity space. So, Mike, the reason I love having you on is not uh, to theorize, but you've been the portfolio manager. And, and what I want to kind of jump to right now is things have changed. Some of it's the same. But what it seems to be, and, and, and Michael Hartzman, who will join us in a little while, always loves to talk about how things have sped up and bear markets go faster. Mm -hmm. Trends seem to be faster. As a portfolio manager, maintaining your discipline and controlling your emotions, 
by having superior securities through factor analysis, I think is is kind of the key. I, I want you to kind of talk about the portfolio manager side and the construction and the discipline side. Well, a portfolio manager is there to design a portfolio consistent with his client's needs, whether the client may be a pension fund or whether just an individual investor, high net worth that has certain goals, wants to achieve certain things, but wants to do it within a certain risk preference frame. He may not want to go, you know, be very aggressive. He may not want to be very conservative. But what you want, he may want income. He may want a certain amount of growth. So you've got to design a portfolio that fits those risk characteristics. That is the challenge. You've got to do it in such a way that if you had a benchmark of just what he wanted to do, you want to, your, at least my role as a portfolio manager would be to design a portfolio that would actually outperform that benchmark because he's going to pay me a fee. And I, in order to justify that fee, I've got to perform consistent with the model portfolio, but I've got to give him a certain excess profit or alpha above that, which would justify my fee. Which is exactly, exactly the point of staying disciplined. And Mike, what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of, I believe, and I, and I know we talk a lot, you use an expression, sideshows, uh, crazy meme stocks, and people, portfolio managers, afraid for their job, getting out of their box, doing things that uh, I like to call stupid, um, trying to keep up with an index uh, and, and not maintaining their discipline. But talk about it as a portfolio manager. Uh, if you're emotional, you can get caught up with it. If you use quantitative factor analysis, you can avoid, I believe, those mistakes. That's a, you know, that's a very good point. Uh, consider a portfolio manager who is working within a Morningstar style box, mm-hmm. large cap uh, growth. So he wants to pay, buy large cap stuff, limit himself to large cap stocks, but he wants them to be in a growth category. So he decides what to grow, which stocks go into that category, and then he sits there and he likes them. But all of a sudden he hears that small caps are doing better. So he decides that he's going to change that definition a little bit just in order to perform. And so now what he's done is he's basically drifted from his appointed style he hasn't done anybody any good. He hasn't done the shareholders and the mutual fund any good. And he's trying to gin up his performance, but that may not, may not succeed if he drops his discipline. Now, you working with uh, Magnet and working with uh, the things you do, the same kind of framework, we're able to use our uh, discipline of the model to keep us from straying too far field from where we want to be. And I think that's the safest place, not only for us to be as portfolio managers, but it's the safest place for us to be for our clients. Perfect. That's, that's that's you know what, Mike? I want, to bring out, I want to bring out a point here. You talk about style shift, so important. We are running four separate models, SMAs, and you're right, they're for distinct differences. One just pure growth, one for income. We'll bring Dominic in in a minute or so. And Dominic runs reports on fund managers. And you know what, Mike, you're right. Even if they outperform the market, if they don't stick within their style, that's impossible for Dom to do his job. So style shift and discipline is key, no matter how fast the music gets, right? That's, that's right. No matter how fast the music gets, you've got to keep pace with the music, but you've got to make sure you, you do it within the context of your discipline. Right. And, and so um, let me actually do this because, you know, Mike and Dom run the bulk of the assets. I love the SMAs I run. I love the guidance you give me. If we can bring the engineer to bring Dom and Mike back on, um, I'd love them to, to see where they, they want to go with the conversation. So Mike and Dom, you know uh, Michael Cardi well already. Fire away. Hi, Dominic. Hey, Hi, Michael. Michael. Hey, Michael. Thank you for Welcome. coming back. Welcome. 
So you, you guys already probably touched on one of my pet peeves, and that's money managers that when we allocate, we're allocating to a specific sector of the market, value, growth, large, mid, small. And then uh, we do monthly analysis on every single mutual fund, every single ETF, and we actually track, and style drift is really one of my uh, – pet peeves. I want to allocate to the specific space. And I don't believe the money managers should have the liberty to go to the left or the right. That should be our prerogative. And and frankly, Mike, we've had it happen several times where we end up firing a money manager, even though the performance on the surface looks pretty good, only to find out a year later, they way underperformed um, their space. So, uh, I'd love for you to comment on these money managers that literally, in my opinion, are taking liberties. Style, first off, style drift is outlawed. When you write a prospectus up and you send it to a client, you're telling them that you're going to be a large cap growth or or small cap, small cap uh, uh, value, then you're supposed to be that. And when you start drifting around, you're doing several things. You're violating the law. You're violating... Uh, your, your shareholders' confidence, and quite frankly, you're exposing your, to set yourself to undue risk because these styles tend to evolve over a market cycle. And when you sometimes get tired of the, the category you're in <laughs> and jump into another category, that category frequently underperforms because what you're doing is you're chasing performance. You're not managing performance. And that's a very significant thing, right? I once went to the doctor's, uh, I had a, a toothache, and, and he gave me a, he gave me a painkiller. And he said, I said, you know, this thing keeps hurting. And he said, well, you know what you're doing? He says, you're not managing your pain, you're chasing it. You're always taking the painkiller after the pain gets to you. It's the same thing with a portfolio manager chasing some other style. He shouldn't be doing it for the three reasons. It's illegal, and he shakes <laughs> the client's confidence, and he's exposing himself to into risk about ETFs, exchange-traded funds. And one of the things I enjoy about ETFs is how granular they can become. And, and, a, and an investor can really pinpoint the type of investment they want to make. Could you, um, could you explain to our clients why an ETF is able to be that much more flexible than a 40-act you know, mutual fund? Well, a 40-act a mutual fund... Uh, could be if they wanted to go into a particular very small niche. But uh, an ETF can be micro-cap stocks. I think they're about, well, I wrote an article about that some years ago. It was uh, about six of them. They're micro-cap stocks. Now, if you had a mutual fund of just micro-cap stocks, some people would want the micro-caps and some people wouldn't. Uh, quite frankly, uh, that means you would, may not get the assets under management to make that particular fund profitable. On the other hand, if you were a big mutual fund family, you had a number of different one of the, these niche type stocks, like Van Eck, for example. Van Eck has a, a bunch of you know interesting little niche companies. He always goes for niche. He goes for Cal. He goes for goes for miners. And but he has a portfolio of these things. When one is in style. Uh, then it pays the bills for the other one. And when one isn't in style, it gets carried by those that are in style. And there are some managers who have a preferred habitat in certain ones of those files. And certain money, certain market makers like to make markets in even those little niches, particularly those that come out of something like the, the old Amex. They sit, on the, they sit on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and they monitor it and they make they make a market, they think they know when to buy and when to sell, and hopefully they make some profits out of doing so. But if they did it with a mutual fund, a mutual fund can't be traded all day. You can't make a market. And a mutual fund gets traded at the end of the day at NAV, at the net asset value. That's much different than an ETF. In an ETF, you, you, you can pick your entrance point, you can pick your exit point even as an investor or as a money, as a, as a market maker. And that's a key issue. In 1997, uh, October, I think it's October 6th, a long time ago, 
But I do remember the event because uh, there were some people who said that the market was going to crash. And in fact, the market did crash. What happens when a, a mutual fund owner of the S&P 500 index fund goes out, goes out and tries to, tries to sell the stock thinking that they're going to get a certain NAV on October 5th? So they turn in their, their, buy, their sell order to whichever company, and then that company is willing to sell that at NAV at the close of business on October 6th. But what happens is the market crashed 20.2% that day. So he got 20.2% less than he thought that he was going to get from the NAV of the previous day. You don't have that problem with an ETF. I don't know how the time went, but, but we're coming up against a break already. So we're going to have to end it right here. But, folks, Michael and I, I met Michael when there was nothing but spiders and diamonds. And Michael said, watch what happens in the ETF business. It's going to get gigantic. Michael was truly a pioneer. Uh, I appreciate all the consulting on the portfolio and your time tonight, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure joining all of you. Thank you very much for the Thank you, Michael. Have a great evening. All righty. We'll take a real quick break. We'll be right back with more Labenthal Report following the quick break. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella. Um, Dom, tonight's show was a little bit of a, a version of Investopedia, the, uh, the investment encyclopedia. We covered REITs, we covered ETFs, we had some, some really smart people on there to uh, explain to our clients what these things are. I'm, I'm always amazed and grateful that uh, the guests that are willing to come on and spend a little time with us. Uh, I, I'm amazed that I can't believe that uh, they would graciously give their time and, and grateful because this is really the kind of things that clients should be hearing about, uh, hearing the stories we hear, why things make sense or not. Uh, and then we can make our own judgment. The clients can make their own judgment. But uh, we're literally hearing from some of the smartest, uh, in some cases, founders uh, of our industry. Yes. And, and, you know, just going back to what Joe said about REITs, I would venture to guess that most of our clients had no idea that 90% of the revenue that a REIT generates has to be passed along to their shareholders, which is why most REITs probably have the juiciest dividends of any investment out there. And Mike, you, you pointed this out, uh, I think it's six, 12 months ago. We virtually had no real estate exposure in our portfolios last year. It was really one of the, uh, I always use the word lucky, um, but one of the fortuitous things <laughs> that we were able to do. We had almost no exposure. It's the kind of asset class you do not want to own in a recession. Malls and apartment buildings and office buildings, they have a very, you know, have debt service, they have to pay back mortgages and they don't have tenants paying. So it's a bad asset class. We were able to avoid it completely but maybe going forward, this might be something we need to really spend some time on and do some more research on because it could be a terrific asset class. It can be a terrific as- asset class. And, and even last year when the REIT sector was under a ton of pressure, there was still healthcare REITs, which have become very popular with the aging of, of the American population and around the world. We've been hearing about that forever. And, and you know, we touched upon it earlier energy sector as well. We were very light on the energy sector last year and and we went we went back into the energy sector in the beginning of the of the um early spring with knowing that the economy was going to reopen and people were literally literally going to hit the road. 
And, and again, this is part of our responsibility. If, if uh, you see something coming your way, you need to step out so you don't get run over. And then if you see an opportunity, um, we never bet the farm. Uh, uh, Michael brought that up. We have a responsibility as portfolio managers to be prudent and careful in how we allocate our client resources. But this is where you start to rebalance and move eggs from one side of the basket to the other um, and try to get clients a reasonable rate of return. It's dealing and talking to experts like we had on tonight and other shows and taking good advice and making applying that advice to our portfolios. And another expression that Michael Carter used was style drift. And just to reiterate that what that is, and, and I know it's a, a, a bugaboo for you, it's when we hire a portfolio manager to, to fill a space X, whether it's large cap growth or small cap value, and they have a better idea and they start buying investments out of their category um, it's not fair to us as the as the money managers, and certainly not fair to the clients who think they bought X and they wind up with Y. Look, we we all know, uh, and our clients should. These money managers are. Uh, compensated based on their performance, based on their performance compared to their peer group. And, you know, look, if they, I hate to use the word cheat, but if they kind of fudge the numbers a little bit and start buying certain things that really don't belong in their portfolio with the idea of maybe getting a little bit more return, that's style drift. They, they typically would buy large cap growth stocks or things that really don't belong. They, they can try to justify it that it is that in their category, but in the end, it's not. And it's our responsibility to kind of look over their shoulders and make sure they do what they're supposed to do and fire them if they don't. And, and lastly, just a little promo, Dominic. Um, last night, we were fortunate enough to have a legendary investor and, and hedge fund manager, Jim Rogers, um, do another show with us live from Singapore. And that show will be broadcast next Tuesday. We've already recorded it. And it's something that our listeners and viewers do not want to miss. I would uh, strongly urge you, maybe you've watched everything there is to be seen on Netflix, but catch this next one with uh, Jim Rogers, legendary billionaire investor. And he had some compelling ideas on what governments are doing today. They're spending the prospects for inflation and some pretty good positive ideas of where to allocate some dollars to offer us some protection. I think it's going to be a terrific show. I think it will be too. And on that note then, I will see you down the road, my friend. Have a great evening, Mike, and I'll speak to you shortly. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic, Michael, and Jordan will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week. We'll be right back. 